Hey folks, it is a... another intro from Andras and Brian. How you doing, Brian? I'm great. So uh, we're about to jump into uh, an exploration of the films Thunderheart and Incident at Oglala from 1992. And uh, of course, they're coming out the weekend of uh, the week of Thanksgiving. And this is a time to think of a lot of things. And the thing that we're thinking about most on this episode is the mastery of Michael Apted as a director. Uh, yeah. And uh, and I there's a question that we ask throughout this show, and we're that we're trying to get to the bottom of. And I just figured I'd just reach out to Michael Apted, and he wasn't available to give an interview, but I got in touch with his agent. And the question that we have throughout this episode is, which came first, the documentary incident at Oglala, or Thunderheart, the narrative feature? They both came out in 1992. Thunderheart came out first. Incident at Oglala came out second. And so uh, so this is what I got back. Are you ready for me to read what we got back? I'm. This is exciting. I didn't even know this was a thing to hear about. This is thrilling. Oh, uh, so, uh, well, first of all, I'm sorry I didn't forward you the email. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so this is what his agent, I won't say his agent's name, but he has the same initials as me. He's a fellow AJ. And he writes back, I have been in touch. I should I should do it with a British accent, but I'm not going to. I have been in touch <laughs> with Michael's production partner at the time, whose name is Court Christensen, and here's what he has to say. In quotes. The answer to your question is that Oglala came before Thunderheart. They happened in quick succession to each other, and like he did with Coal Miner's daughter, Michael cast a number of locals to add authenticity to the film. John Trudell was definitely the most visible in Thunderheart. The films are very unique in the sense that a filmmaker covered roughly the same set of events in a documentary and a fictionalized story, and Michael has always used these two films to highlight the skills that he uses in both mediums when presenting at film schools. Bam! We nailed it! Spoiler alert, cool. folks. <laughs> listen to the episode before you listen to this intro, because we nailed it! <laughs> Well, that, thank you, Apted people and Apted for answering that question and even taking the time to reach out because most people would probably be dismissive of us in our nice little podcast. And no, it warms my heart. So cool. That they would did you, that. Wouldn't you love to be in a film class taught yeah. by Michael Apted? Oh, and watch these two movies? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's, yeah, that's just great. That makes me like him even more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a this this episode coming up. This is a pretty epic one. First double feature that we've ever done. Yeah, I had a great time recording it and you were very accommodating of my <laughs> passion for the the subject matter, you know. I will they, uh, yeah. these yeah, just these movies are really good and it's I think it's really good to watch them this week. Like we always say watch it before you hear it. But I mean, you can also hear this and be inspired and watch it. it it's not gonna. There's not like huge twists and turns in this movie so much. I mean, there's there is some, but like this is a great. Uh, nothing so highly inappropriate that you can't watch this with your close family at home during this holiday time. So I think it's totally totally worth checking out and finding uh, these two films. Yeah, and you can find them pretty much 
all over the place streaming. I posted links to them on our webpage for the the episode post Great. about this episode. And I'm starting to do something new with Radio 8 Ball. I just want to let people know I don't know how much crossover listening there is, but for the next few weeks at least, I'm going to be experimenting with... Um, what I say? Well, basically having the stuff that we talk about on this show inform my question on Radio 8 Ball and then Ooh. sort of have a sort of a synchronistic little seminar. You know, my, my dad taught at the Evergreen State College and at the Evergreen State College, they have, you probably know this, you went there, right? Yeah, I graduated from there in 2004. Yeah. yeah, so the that whole idea of the the curriculums where you'll have You'll be doing three different, you'll have an English class and some sort of environmental studies and then the philosophy class and their interdisciplinary sort of mixed together in one seminar. And that whole seminar structure mm -hmm. was something that one, that was one of my father's, I don't say inventions, but he was crucial in, in bringing that to Evergreen as one of the founding faculty. And he would have his dream, he would lead these dream seminars as part of that. So you'd be reading a book and talking about a certain time in history and then doing these dream seminars where you sort of allowed your subconscious to explore the, to be informed by the ideas uh, that you're reading about and, and immersing yourself huh. in. And so in the same way, I'm just going to try that out to see like, Hey, we're going to have a, we have an academic, a fun academic conversation on this show about a topic and a film but if you want to explore the film in a more loosey-goosey, what does it mean to me, what does it mean to you kind of way, uh, that's what I'm going to be doing uh, going forward for a little while, at least on Radio 8 Ball and seeing how it goes. And the first one I'm doing that with is this one. And so uh, that uh, that episode, by the time this episode comes out, that will already be out and be the most recent episode at Great. Radio 8 Ball. It's our Guildfast 2020 episode and we'll be talking more about <laughs> Guildfast. But this is a weird this is a weird Thanksgiving time. Yeah. There's a lot to be grateful for and a lot to be fearful of. <laughs> <laughs> but I think lean into the grateful, you know, like it, 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 if you're feel fearful of these times, just remember that so is everybody else on the entire planet. Like, literally, everybody is dealing with the same problem and the same scary thing. So, like, yeah, this Thanksgiving's weird. Well, that Thursday is going to be weird for everybody on Earth because we're all dealing with COVID. And uh, I just want to encourage people to stay home. Don't hang out with your grandparents, no matter how much you love them. Let's not get everybody sick. Let's just be safe and, you know, just have a nice private meal with your significant other or even alone you can eat, you, know, you can eat a great meal alone you can you can do that every day <laughs> yeah so uh so what are you what are you grateful for Brian oh i'm i'm grateful for so much and definitely like these weird times make me really even more introspective you know and i'm just thankful to have you know a really nice family a really great wife like if i didn't have her during covid i would go crazy <laughs> I'm really thankful that I have good friends like you that can reach out during these weird times and say, hey, let's do something fun. That's a much better way to occupy my mind than sitting around worrying all the time. So I'm very happy to have like, these projects, nice projects like The World is Wrong podcast. It's, it's a much better way to use my brain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Radio 8 Ball has taken a dark turn 
in the last few weeks <laughs> and and uh having having this podcast and ha- just knowing that I'm gonna smile and laugh with a friend talking about movies that like and we're and because like, yeah just the fact I, I I was worried kind of about if we could pull off an extremely positive podcast or if I could pull off an extremely positive podcast considering where my mind goes on in so many ways, but it's such a great, I just, I am true. It's what it is. One of the things that has made this COVID time. Uh, I'll remember that. Remember this joyfully that, uh, Good. that we reconnected. I mean, we've been friends, but this, you know, we're, we really, I've, we gotten to know each other really well. I feel like in the last six months and, yeah, you know, we're still talking about the same things that we always talk about whenever we run into each other, but we just made time, and uh, yeah, so I'm I'm happy to have any reason to have a smile on my face, and uh, of course, I should probably also, but not just I should. There's I also every day I talk to my girlfriend, and she's not with me, but she's in Maryland, and uh, we talk every day. And it and she is super supportive and she listens to every episode as soon as it comes out, which is just, (laughs) you know, like being it's I've been with people who don't want, you know, who just sort of like see that as a burden and to be with someone who uh, who just who's as excited about the creative output as I am uh, makes me very happy. So, yeah, I'm very I'm grateful for that. And I we should you know, if anyone's listening to this. And we know that a few people are, and some people have been saying some nice things. Uh, respond, we get a lot of nice, happy, fun responses to the Never Say Never Again episode. I'm grateful that we covered the mm-hmm. Never Say Never Again. Uh, <laughs> your choices of films are all really very, uh, they're all happy choices, even when they're <laughs> weird choices like after last season. It's still a happy choice. It's optimistic. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is all it's so, and, and thanks to everyone who's, who is listening and enjoying this podcast. And if you're sharing this with your friends and, you know, when you just write, reach out to us and say any nice little thing on Instagram, I don't know about you, Brian, but that is the kind of thing that makes my day. Yeah, I agree. Like when you hear nothing, you just wonder, like, are we just shouting to the wind? Hello, is anyone out there? (laughs) But even just a little comment of like this, this is a funny picture or whatever the heck. It's nice to be like, oh, good. There's there's somebody out there who's actually paying attention to this. That that's wonderful. And uh, <clears throat> and just to to get us in the mood of what we're about to go into, uh, so there's it's all it's all good and fine to to show gratitude and to be thankful, but sometimes it's important to atone. And I just want to right now before before things get out of hand, apologize to anyone who's offended for for what I'm about to say about. Bruce Springsteen's landmark double album, The River. I know it's a beloved and great record, <laughs> and uh, I didn't mean to say anything negative about it. It just slipped out. You ready to hit into this? You ready to do this, Brian? Let's, let's, let's do it. Okay, I'm sorry. Radio 8 Ball. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. 
That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Thunderheart, an incident at Oglala. Hey, Brian. <laughs> you ready to go back to the Badlands? <laughs> Fan. Huge. What's your favorite album? Uh, it's very hard. You, you, you know we don't like those questions. Uh, <laughs> my favorites are, as, and not in any order, except they're in chronological order. A- Asbury Park, Born to yeah. Run, Darkness on the Edge yeah. of Town, oh, Nebraska... Yeah. And then, actually, the most recent one, Western Stars, would be fifth. Would jump, would jump really over good. the river. I don't really, I don't, I don't love the river. Um, really? Yeah, that's one. Of, that's the only. I just don't. I don't like the sound of it. I feel it's a. It's to me, it's a, a pretty. To me, it's it's the it's a pretty boring record. I know I love Heart, yeah. Hungry Heart, and people love it, but I think it's yeah. like compared to Darkness, it's so like. Yeah. Yeah, that, that Darkness is my favorite. That is like one of the most well-recorded albums ever. <laughs> so it, it's so good. I love it, but it's so it's so hard to say it's my favorite because it's re, it's so because it's so dark. And one of the things I love about Springsteen is his exuberance. So yeah. like Asbury Park and Born to Run have this heroic thing, heroic yeah. optimistic thing that just like it's really hard that rock and roll is you know, it's just very hard to do that and also be, like, believable. Like, there's a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah rock and roll songs, but a rock and roll song that gives you that yeah, yeah feeling, but that doesn't sound like yeah. R-O-C-K in the USA, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, I really love. like Tunnel of Love, too. Tunnel of Love is good. I actually, you know, I like t- Tunnel of Love would probably be in that list around six or seven you know, it, did you like Western Stars? Did you listen to Western Stars? That's great. I love it. That, that's great. You know who's on that record? Yeah. Who? Our buddy, John Bryan. <laughs> He's all I over it. I wish to listen to it again with that in my head. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So. Welcome to The World is Wrong. An extremely positive podcast where we champion films the world is wrong about. I'm one of your hosts, Andras Jones. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other host. And we are here on the week of this pretty big holiday in America. Do you uh are you a do you celebrate Guild Fast, Brian? 
<laughs> wait, wait, Guild Fest? What's a Guild Fest? Guild Fest. Uh, oh, well, yeah. It's oh, the, Guild Fest. <laughs> yeah, Guild Fest. It's, uh, it's the, uh, the companion holiday that goes along with Thanksgiving, in which we are encouraged to fast from sundown the night before Thanksgiving until sundown the day of Thanksgiving, and during that time, contemplate the, uh, the history, the dark and bloody history of the European invasion of this continent. And uh, I actually, to full disclosure, I invented this holiday, but I've been, I've been, <laughs> I've been propagating it since the, since the mid to late nineties. And uh, it hasn't taken off as fast as I'd like. But I'm hoping, you know, maybe this podcast will encourage some people to take it on. I do it every year, and I find that it makes the makes the thankful aspect of it, it balances it out. Some people don't like, some people have a, a weird uh, relationship with guilt. They think that guilt is negative. I think that shame is negative. But guilt is positive. It's an opportunity to atone to acknowledge to you know to say you're sorry when when things have gone wrong so uh yeah anyway <laughs> i'm sorry to poke so, <laughs> you there i'm sorry to use to, to commandeer this episode for my own promotional aims because there's you know i make a lot of no, money I every feel- guilt fast off this <laughs> <laughs> I don't make any money. I, guilt fast. I feel guilty now that I don't celebrate guilt fast. Well, you don't have I, to. Well, yeah, yeah. you know, well, that's a good, that's a, how does that feel for you? To be guilty? <laughs> well, uh, to be guilty about something that you can correct. Like, I think this, the, this is true. Like, I, there are things um, I feel guilty about I can't do anything about, but this is easy, you know. <laughs> have you ever fasted before? No, I'm a hungry boy. I've never, I've never skipped a meal my entire life. In fact, I've added meals. <laughs> You've never skipped a meal? No, I, I'm a three meal a day from cradle to grave. Uh, sounds like fasting is definitely... <laughs> I fast, I'm constantly fasting. I'm fasting between every um, meal, first of all. I eat between every meal. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big glutton. What do you want? I'm the problem. Okay. You're not the problem. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, uh, it is the, it is that week where we have to contend. Well, we have to, we get to, we have the opportunity to contend with the relationship between the Europeans of this land and the indigenous people of this land. And that's why we chose this one-two punch of Thunderheart and Incident at Oglala from 1992 by the director Michael Apted. Grandpa, speak English, please. Listen, I, I need to understand what's happening to me. I... Well, you got to get out of here. I belong here. Why aren't you at Red Deer Table like old man says? What is the big deal about that place? Can I get a straight answer around here? It's a power deal. Fast Elk found out, so they killed him. Well, they're going to kill you if you if you stay here now. Come on, let's go. Well, sometimes they have to kill us. They have to kill us. Because they can't break our spirit. Aim, of course, was engaged in confrontational politics at that time. Their 
absolute intention was to attract attention to Indian problems by political confrontation and, if necessary, violence. In 1972, during the Nixon re-election, we went to D.C. and we ended up occupying the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the national headquarters. We kept it for like a week, but it was highly embarrassing to the Nixon administration. We had gone too far. A lot of the people, the Indian leadership and stuff, were from South Dakota at that time, you know, so after that occupation was over and everything, Indian came back down here in Pine Ridge. It seemed like by January of 1973 that the FBI had sent some people into Pine Ridge to start training the BIA and tribal police on how to deal with subversives or counter-subversive activity, whatever the thing is, right? And they started bringing heavy weapons in. Now, this is before the Wounded Knee occupation. This is before, you know, so it's like they had, they had picked that as the grounds, right, to have the standoff. You thought he was some crazy old coot talking myths and bullshit. Let me tell you something, Haas. His visions are strong. Do they come in dreams, these visions? Yeah, dreams. Sometimes during sickness, sweat lodge, vision quest. You never know when. <clears throat> Just before they caught Jimmy, I had a dream. I was being run down. I was running with other Indians. I was shot in the back. Then, uh, last night I drove past it. The place that happened, I saw it. Saw what? Wounded Knee Memorial. You were running with the old ones at the knee. It was just a dream. Who the hell are you, man? What do you mean? You had yourself a vision. Man waits a long time to have a vision. Might go his whole lifetime and never have one. And along comes some instant Indian with a, with a fucking Rolex and a brand new pair of shoes. Goddamn FBI, to top it all off, has himself a vision. Sorry. Okay, so imagine that you are a very talented and kind of lucky English documentarian who has built a reputation for yourself as a Hollywood director making issue-oriented, female-driven prestige pictures like Coal Miner's Daughter and Gorillas in the Mist. And then you get the opportunity to A, document an international injustice tied to one of the original sins of the United States, and B, use that material, the majestic setting in which it actually takes place, and the subjects who lived it, augmented with movie stars and Hollywood money to fuel an action-packed espionage thriller that is simultaneously spiritual and political and exciting and even funny. And then you do it, and you do it really well. Well, that's, that's what you got with Thunderheart and Incident at Oglala from Michael Apted, where he focuses on, in the, in the documentary part, Incident at Oglala, he focuses on the American Indian Movement, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, and the cases of Leonard Peltier and Anna Mae Aquash. For more on these topics, I highly recommend checking out the episode of the Burst Your Bubble podcast, where they covered Thunderheart. Uh, seriously, pause this now, listen to their episode. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's about 30 minutes. 
and it will prepare you to delve a little bit deeper into the filmmaking uh, with us and also let me off the hook of having to really get all of the history right because they did a great job of it. And I, I, I was saying to this to you before we started this, Brian, mm-hmm. I feel so much pressure to get this right just talking about it on this podcast. I can't imagine what it must have felt like for Michael Apted to know that he's making this documentary. And while he's making this documentary, he's making a film about the topics around this documentary with people who are part of the real story. The amount of pressure on just as an artist to get it right and to to really honor these this story as, as a yeah. white guy from England trying to tell the story about Native Americans in America. It's, yeah. it's that's, it's so... It's so amazing. It's so intimidating. And then that he got it so right is just uh, so impressive to me. So anyway, um, now that you've listened to the Burst Your Bubble podcast about it and know a little bit more about the history, let's talk about these films. So Thunderheart was the, is the narrative feature, and it came out on April 3rd, 1992. And Incident at Oglala is the documentary about the... Uh, goings on at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in the 70s. And that came out on June 26th of the same year, 1992. Now, in Incident at Oglala, uh, the documentary, which is narrated by Robert Redford, its focus is specifically on the case of Leonard Peltier, who, based upon the evidence presented in the film, was pretty clearly railroaded by the FBI when he was convicted of the murder of two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation on June 26, 1975. And yes, that is exactly 17 years before documentary about it was released. Uh, now, in exploring the case against Peltier, the film documents the formation of the American Indian Movement, the 1973 standoff when AIM occupied Wounded Knee for about two and a half months. It covers the goon squads of the tribal authorities who were working with the FBI and extractive industries uh, they were supporting on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, the murder of Anime Aquash, and the general and overwhelming mistreatment of the indigenous people of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Uh, One of the primary sources for context in the documentary is John Trudell. And Trudell was the official spokesman for AIM during the events documented in the film, as well as during the occupation of Alcatraz in 1969. In 1979, Trudell's wife, Tina Manning, their three children, and his mother-in-law died in a, a, a suspicious fire that he always believed was arson, uh, intended to silence him and his activist wife. Uh, Trudell connects the two projects because he was signed to play the Peltier-inspired role of Jimmy Looks Twice in Thunderheart. Uh, Now, Thunderheart, we're switching to the narrative feature. That's a film starring Val Kilmer, Graham Greene, and Sam Shepard. And in this film, the focus is mostly on Kilmer's Ray Lavoy, an FBI agent with Native American heritage that he is totally disconnected from, who was assigned to assist in the investigation of a murder on the Bear Creek Reservation as a stand-in for uh, the Pine Ridge Reservation, where most of the film was shot. Once in the Badlands, uh, on the case in North Dakota, Kilmer's character connects with Sam Shepard's Frank Cooch Cattell, 
a legendary lawman who, no surprise, turns out to be less than sensitive to all things native. You know, in the right light, with your head turned like that, you kind of remind me of Sal Mineo in uh, Arrows on the Prairie. Did you ever see that one? Other than that, your coming here is like pissing in the wind. In the course of Kilmer's investigations, he also gets to know Graham Greene, playing a tribal cop who is probably the coolest character in the film, with the best lines. That dead eagle feather you found gave you a little chub, didn't it? Well, we all have feathers from the same eagle. We share everything on the reds. Those are my sunglasses. Over the course of just a few very intense and cinematic days, Kilmer's character experiences a spiritual awakening and a reconnection to his heritage that culminates in a shootout, car chase, showdown that actually and miraculously works. In the meantime, the narrative feature smuggles in the anything-but-optimistic story of anime Aquash in the Maggie Eagle Bear storyline, while digging into an environmental angle focusing on the uranium extraction on the res that must have been one of those hard cuts for Apted in the documentary. This masterful example of the documentary-slash-narrative one-two cinematic punch just makes me wonder why more documentaries don't work in conjunction with filmmakers and producers from the jump. It seems like a formula for some honest greatness, and that's what was achieved here. I feel like the two films support each other, speak to each other. Well, We're going to get into how the world is wrong, but I think one of the ways the world is wrong about this is that people just don't talk. Like when people talk about Thunderheart, you should always talk about Incident at Oglala. The fact that anyone mentions one without mentioning the other, it's just it's, it seems very odd to me. They, they feel like such companion pieces. So that's my uh, that's the best I can do in telling the story of these two films. And there's still a lot to cover. So. Okay, so why, how is the world wrong about these movies? Ah, uh, well, Brian. First of all, this is this is the nerdy thing. Uh, I've become a really big Michael Apted fan. I I've always been into him, but I've been recently just digging into his work, and whenever he does interviews, whenever people talk about him, all they talk about is the Up series which he makes pretty clear he just kind of lucked into when he talks about it in interviews. And I just feel like everything about these two, these two films and Mike and his career in general is just as impressive as the Up series. So I think that's one of the things. It's just like when people talk about Michael Apted, I feel like this should be in the conversation, mm-hmm. particularly this one, because it's a bigger topic, the legacy of Native American genocide. And the fact that he was able to use his mastery of the documentary form and of the narrative form and use both of these skills to take this story on and that he did it so well feels like it deserves to be talked about as you know, one of the great feats of filmmaking. Okay. So that's uh, are you are you familiar with Apted's work beyond the Up series? I, I am like, yeah, I love like I love uh, Gorillas in the Mist. He did um, that. He did that Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough, which is actually one of my favorite Bond movies, featuring the great Sophie Marceau. So good, so good. Yeah. So I mean, he 
he's a talented guy and you're right like they tend to just like the up movies are brilliant like they are definitely like some of the best maybe the best documentaries of all time but i agree that like he's so much more than that like he's he's made movies for decades like so many movies stuff for tv and he's just like i feel his name isn't quite spoken enough when people talk about great filmmakers yeah yeah i just to go through a few of his that i just that i'm beyond uh this film that i that i love there were two david essex rock and roll movies in the early 70s and one's called that'll be the day and ringo Starr has a supporting role in it and the other is called stardust and keith moon has a supporting role in it and michael apted did stardust the keith moon one which is just is the better one of these two films uh, i love his film the squeeze Oh, uh, I forgot. Oh, I didn't even realize he did that one. Oh, that movie's great. I love that movie. It's it's so weird because it's like this heartwarming and gritty English gangster film starring Stacey Keach as an alcoholic father roped into helping out his friend Edward Fox out of a kidnapping jam. And it just has such a weird tone. And Stacey Keach is giving an amazing performance. I, he's an actor who I've been wrong about in the past, but uh, actually the guys on the Pure Cinema podcast have been talking about his films and I've started to realize how great Stacy Keach is. Um, Aptit also did Continental Divide, the Belushi and Blair Brown uh, ro mature romantic comedy, sort of like Belushi's only grown-up-ish kind of film. Huh. Uh, which Never seen that movie. Oh, it's great. It was written by Lawrence Kasdan and uh, the characters based on the uh, Chicago journalist Mike Royko, and it just—it's a really—it's a—it's a solid, just a solid little film. Which I maybe that's one of the things with Apted. Sometimes he's just so good at just being a professional filmmaker and delivering what's there without necessarily putting his stamp on it. Yeah, that. Uh, those kind of directors tend to not get the big accolades. Yeah. Um, I was curious, have you ever seen Critical Condition, the Richard Pryor? Yeah. Uh, the Yes. <laughs> is that Michael Epted as well? So he directed that. I, I haven't seen it. Was that is that good? It is good. I, I I haven't I saw that one years ago, but no, that's totally a good movie. So I need to see that. And the guys at Pure Cinema also uh, recommended a film call, of his called Patang Yang Kipper Bang, which is supposed to be this really excellent coming of age picture that uh, an English coming of age picture that I've been I haven't been able to find. And then okay. he also produced two amazing series, the series Rome, which I don't know if you saw it, but that was so, I mean, it's kind of not, it's not the kind of thing that I particularly gravitate to, but it was so good. It just really grabbed me as one of those second wave, like the, after the Sopranos, once cable and HBO realized, oh, we can do these really amazing series and Rome I feel like Rome and Deadwood yeah. happened about the same time and had that same quality of like, oh, this is, you know, TV is going to be good now. And then he also did the <laughs> Masters of Sex series about uh, oh. Masters and Johnson, which was also really, really excellent. Again, sort of post Mad Men, but really all, but hitting all the things that were so good about Mad Men, except that the protagonist is 
a woman instead of uh, I mean you can sort of say that the there was a there were female protagonists in Mad Men but it wasn't driven it was driven by Don Draper anyway so that's just you know and there, that's just the the high points for me there's it's a really amazing career and uh, definitely worth checking him out as maybe Apted could be he'd be a really interesting director for you to do on the director's wall. This is true. The problem, though, is he did so much TV. I bet it's going to be hard to track down a lot of like the old BBC stuff. That's probably true. Yeah, if I can't go do it all, I don't want to do it. <laughs> well, well, we're gonna. Re- I'm gonna reach out to Michael Apted about being on the show, and if we if he likes it and he gets in touch with us, maybe he'll you know unlock the vaults for you. <laughs> you should start doing these directors walls in conjunction with the directors. That would be amazing. Um. Uh, Okay, so uh, so going back to ways the world is wrong about this film. So that's one. Michael Apted just should get more cred as a director. He's more than just the Up series. The other one of the other ways that the film is uh, the world is wrong about this movie is around John Trudell. Yeah, the guy is just such a not just a star because when he his role in the movie in the documentary, he's a historical figure who is you know he's he has as the spokesperson for aim he is an important voice in american history and he's also just so good in this film like a kinetic vibrant performance and you can tell like some of the dialogue if you know if you're familiar with john's work as a poet and as a as a speaker and as a musician as a songwriter it seems like he exerted some, you know, some of his own creativity on that aspect of the film. And it did, you know, he got to be kind of an indie star out of this. Jackson Brown produced a record for him and he appeared in some other films. He was in Apted's Extreme Measures, which was a medical malpractice drama with Hugh Grant and Gene Hackman. And he had a small role in it. But considering the fact of what Trudell means to uh, our country as a historical figure and then what he does in this film as an actor, which is, I feel like, a star-making performance, and then what he did after this as a songwriter and poet, he just feels like a person who... Well, uh, full disclosure, he was a guest on Radio 8 Ball, and when I try and drop his name to people, because I feel like he's one of the most impressive guests we've ever had on the show most people don't know who he is. So that's another way that the world is wrong about this film. Yeah. And, uh, but aside from all that, he's just so good in this movie. Every time he's on feet on, on screen, it's electric. He's just, he's a natural actor. Like he just has it, you know, like not every, and like acting isn't easy. You know that you don't just show up in the camera's role and you just make it good. Like you actually have to know what you're doing. And for a person who didn't do a lot of acting before this, he is, so good like he's powerful and your eyes are drawn to him on the screen he just has such a presence every scene that he's in in this movie so i guess in a way like there's a part of me that feels like the world is wrong that we didn't get more but there's also a part of me that feels so like the world is right that within this film that we got john trudell giving this performance it also lends authority to what he does as a historical figure in the documentary so uh yeah, we'll probably be talking more about Trudell as we break this film down. And 
Then, of course, the other thing that's wrong, where the world is wrong, is that we're just not nearly as informed or aware about the history of the indigenous people of the Americas as we should be. We don't know, know enough about their history before the European invasion. We don't know much. We don't know enough about their history during the time of conquest and genocide. And we're not really connected with how much modern history is connected to that legacy, whether it's standoffs at uh, Standing Rock over pipelines or mineral extraction or tar sands in Canada. It's just a it's still a very modern and hot issue that speaks to us and is important. And uh, so that's why. And I'm, this is why this is this is what I'd like to see come out of this podcast. I believe that People should be watching this film on Thanksgiving, <laughs> these films on Thanksgiving and Guilt Fest, the way that people watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life or Die Hard on Christmas. <laughs> it just feels like if you're going to if you're going to be engaging with our history we should bring some truth to it. And maybe you're not up to watching, depends on, upon what your family's like. If, if you, Maybe you're not up to watching Incident at Oglala <laughs> on Thanksgiving. Maybe that's just a little bit too much. Maybe if you're ready to go for Guilt Fast, watch Incident at Oglala during Guilt Fast. But on Thanksgiving, Thunderheart is like a fun movie. It has an, a powerful and optimistic ending. It's It's got action. It's not too heavy-handed and preachy. I think it's actually really inspirational and offers a message of like, well, what happens for Val Kilmer in this film that by being awakened to his connection to that history, his life gets better. Yeah. And I feel like that this film, and if it weren't for there being a documentary that really tells the dark story, you couldn't tell this really optimistic story dark and true but also optimistic story that's in thunderheart and i just feel like if people added that to their thanksgiving ritual it would be i think it would be a better day i think even if you think oh that's a bummer i think you'll feel better about your day and you'll be have a better time digesting all that food <laughs> if you watch thunderheart than if you watch a football game or a movie that just adds to the cognitive dissonance of this day and so, what's great is yeah. it's not a terribly long movie, so you could probably watch Thunderheart and your long football game. You could you could fit them both in. You know, like Thanksgiving's all day. You can you know you can fit Thunderheart in between the Macy's Parade and the 4 p.m. football game. Thunderheart can fit nice and snug right right there while they're pre- while they're prepping the food. Even before you eat, you could fit in a Thunderheart. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you approve of my suggestion. <laughs> And like you said, I think like it's awesome that Michael Apt had made both the doc and this because it, it's like you're right. He was able to get out the truths and the darkness in the doc, so that way, in Thunderheart you can have you can have that optimism. But also like docs tend to not reach as many people, but they are important. And what's good about Thunderheart is it will reach people who normally would never have sat down to watch Inc- Incident at Ogulala. Like he would like reach more people with Thunderheart. So it's cool that he did both. Yeah. Well, that's, this is a good place to, to shift over to you. What did you, what did you make of these two pictures? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I'd seen Thunderheart when I was like a little kid. 
like it was it's strange enough. Maybe this is a Pacific Northwest thing, but it was rented for me and my friends at a slumber party. Like mom brought home pizza and a VHS of Thunderheart and we watched it and I loved it. Like at the time I was like, that movie's great. Like I was really into the characters. I was really into the story. It, it's totally an exciting movie. And I had no idea until we did this episode that there was a the companion doc. So to watch uh, Incident at Oglala was just made Thunderheart all the more richer because I uh, didn't know all the details that were s similar to reality. Like I knew who John Trudell was. Like I knew about the Leonard Peltier situation that the doc covers, but I didn't know about all the other stuff like the school teacher and all that things that the that Thunderheart references that are true. And so it really just like they definitely work together so well and you can watch them back to back and, it, and there's no it doesn't feel redundant or anything it just it's just it just is a very interesting uh double feature a uh, very powerful double feature and so i just yeah i watched i've been seeing this movie in like 25 years and it's great it's re like all the actors are so good in this movie like like val kilmer is is really good in this I and mean, like i kind of feel like I'm going to throw in my two cents. If I think the world is kind of wrong about Val Kilmer, like I think we forget that there was a time where he was just like a powerhouse in every movie. Well, this at this point, he is he's in the middle of his best run from The Doors to Thunderheart to Tombstone. I think it's pretty... I think... I, I can't imagine anyone's going to disagree with the... The idea that these might be his three greatest performances on film. There's other yeah. really good ones. You know, there's. Would you agree? What are your What are your favorite Kilmer films? I'm a big fan of Top Secret, of course. Knowing me, like that movie's amazing, <laughs> and seeing Val Kilmer do slapstick is just oh great. I love him in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I think he's so funny and great in that. Like I think he's really yeah. good at comedy. And uh, I, 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 maybe I'm the only one, but I really like The Island of Dr. Moreau with him in it. I think that movie's great. I think he's having fun in that. He does a good Brando impersonation. And I love him in Coppola's uh, recent movie, Twixt. Like that, he's really fun in that and great. And he's just, I don't know. I just, I've always loved Val Kilmer. You're leaving something out. What am I leaving out? Heat? <laughs> Well, he's he, good. He's really good, but I'm thinking of Spartan. Oh, the Mammoth movie. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that movie's. Oh, yeah, that movie's great. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally forgot about that movie. Oh, that movie's awesome. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't. I'm just looking at it. I forgot that he was in Port of Call, New Orleans. That's right. He is. He's. It's kind of a smaller part, but he makes the most of it. It's just kind of hard to take that one from Nicolas Cage because he just eats that movie up. But It's a similar kind of role to the one he played in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah, he's sort of like the straight man. He's sort of like the, the Bud Abbott to the <laughs> <laughs> Luke Costello that is Robert Downey Jr. or Nicolas Cage. Yeah, yeah. But going back to this, like I just feel like, yeah, he's in the middle of this run and following the synchronicity of it, the idea that he goes from the doors where he's playing this, playing Jim Morrison and... The Oliver Stone's Jim Morrison really leans into the mythology of him uh, being imbued with the spirit of a dead uh, native uh, that he saw in a car crash when he was a kid. And then to go from that 
to this other film that I feel like digs into his nat- his own Native American American heritage or his connection to his Native American heritage in a way that I feel like is a lot, probably a lot more grounded and respectful, like that he was able, and then actually, and then, then he plays this ghost cowboy in Tombstone. I feel like in a way, the th- those three roles kind of speak to each other and I can feel, it's almost like as an actor, they're like three acts of one movie. It's interesting. Yeah. Like the young, the young guy who's sort of immersed in this dream of his native American heritage. And then this, the next one is a guy who is totally in denial of it, who gets into the reality of it. And then this ghost, like you can, it's almost like the, his character, his doc holiday and tombstone is haunted by the, the crimes of like the deep, deep crimes of America. And that's why he's such a, a weird doomed ghost in that film. Yeah. Anyway, I, I sometimes look at, at actors uh, runs like that. I mm-hmm. I know that for myself, when I've act, when I've had the opportunity to act in a few films in a row that I definitely had this feeling of, Oh, no one's going to see this, but I could feel how, one this character walks out of one movie and then walks into another movie changed but still the same guy because it's me playing them so and for someone like uh Kilmer who is very much a method actor it it's hard to remove his personal i don't know his person from those roles they're not just roles that's an artist delivering those roles who's very conscious of you know, bringing himself to it. So. Yeah. Uh, Well, uh, I sort of interrupted. Were there other things that you thought were, we can get into talking about the performances in the film, but were there other things that you wanted to talk about, about the film in general, the the films? I keep saying the film because it's easy to talk about Thunderheart, but I feel like we Um, really need to bring them together. I think I really, really liked the reenactments in Incident. I think like he did a good job of like when people are telling the story, it's like the the footage he shot of like the cars driving on the reservation, all that. Like I thought he did a good job of having the movie, not just be talking heads, you know? And I really, I really liked that part of it. And then what's great about Thunderheart is like seeing like in so much of, of incident at Oglala is like people talking about, you know, the incident and what happened and talking about, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, what the FBI did and they interview some of the FBI people in that movie, but it was cool to kind of see Thunderheart kind of show you more what it was like to be there, like in a fictional way. But like, it was, it was cool to see, you know, these FBI guys really doing a poor job <laughs> and just sort of like how, you know, like the, with the, the goon squad that was talked about. And like, again, it's just sort of the parallels between the two, like hearing them talk about is interesting from the real people, but it's also fun to watch it kind of played out in a scenario. It's just, it's, it's just, it just makes for like a really powerful experience. Like the whole watching both these movies. Yeah. Like in the incident at Oglala, it all starts with this F these FBI agents charging their car onto a plot of land without knowing what they're going into. And that becomes a big piece of the documentary. And then you have several scenes where 
you have Val Kilmer as this new FBI agent on the reservation rushing into these situations without knowing what's up. And if there wasn't the documentary to give reality to it, or I guess it's sort of like if if you're just watching the movie, then you're like, oh, okay, well, that's just a thing that happens in movies. People charge their cars into places or charge into places. But then when you think about it, having seen the documentary, you can see that the films are talking to each other, right? Yeah. There's a deeper understanding of the fun of Thunderheart because you know that that's based in a reality that that transcends the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um well let's 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 get into talking about how the films talk to each other in that way. So we've got John Trudell playing the sort of Leonard Peltier type character in this film. That's obviously I think that's the main that is the main connection and also the setting. Um yeah. I did a little research. You know what other film was shot in the Badlands? And it'll make it, as soon as I say it, if you think about the images in this film, particularly the night images in Thunderheart, it'll totally make sense. You uh, know the movie Badlands? <laughs> no, no. That's a, that's a, no, Starship Troopers. Oh, oh, wow. Interesting. Right? Huh. Okay. Doesn't that totally make that sense? To- yeah. Oh. Okay. That's wow. How fascinating. Another another movie about people uh, sneaking on other people's uh, land and taking it from them and, and unjustly uh, killing them and fucking with their culture. Yeah. Yeah. In a in a way. Yeah. No. I mean, absolutely. And it's the fact. I didn't even really think about that, but the fact of use. I was just thinking that it it made a great uh, lunar or space landscape but also that it is another european invasion of indigenous lands yes yeah wow yeah well (laughs) so i went back i i I rewatched it again the badlands i mean i rewatched thunderheart again this morning and the landscape is so crucial to this i mean in so many scenes the landscape is so featured and it's you know if you have it use it but i also feel like there's because um because apted was on the reservation telling the true story of the incident at, o- at oglala it seems like he also might have been might have got extra access to parts yeah. of the reservation that you might not have access to if you're Paul Verhoeven. And, yeah. you know, like you might have access, but you might not be invited or pointed out, you know, if you really want to go, you should go here. And so they had the, the scene with the sweat lodge and they have these nighttime scenes with the badlands in the background. There's just the, it seems like the, the landscape is, is a big connecting piece and the way it's represented. It's like, in Incident at Oglala, the landscape seems pretty. It's a little bit, a little bit more bleak the way it's represented, and it makes sense. Like you're telling a bleak tale, but at the same time, I can imagine being a director and being like, "Oh my God, there's, like, I want this to be beautiful, but it's the wrong feeling to get for my documentary to show how beautiful the land is." 
But then in this do- in the the narrative feature, he just gets to revel in the land, and you can just imagine. I mean, he's a guy who's has done a lot of films, whether it's Continental Divide or Gorillas in the Mist, where he has gone into unique locations and had unique access. And I just feel like this film is just reveling in it. Um, <laughs> I feel like you can also tell that it's really hot there. Like the movie <laughs> Thunderheart makes it seem like everybody's kind of sweaty and hot. And this is sort of like just a maybe unbearable at times of the year heat uh, that you'd get from the Badlands. And and I think too, like you, what's great about talking back the access like you can tell watching this movie that it was embraced by the community and that like they're it's they're not just because they're represented in it but like you can just tell that he wanted to have act the actual people help with the movie and then they did like someone could have easily made this movie and just brought actors in and did their own thing but the fact that you're shooting it in the place with the actual people it just makes it so much better and, and like, that's why I think Thunderheart works because sure, it's a fun movie and there's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a Hollywood movie in a way, but it just having that reality there just, it just, it just adds so much more to, to the, to, to it, the whole thing. Like, I'm sure John Trudell, I'm just sure from that he had some say, he might not have credit as a writer, but he had some say in that dialogue because it's so yeah. real to him. A couple of other examples. I think Ted Thin Elk, who plays the grandpa in it. Grandpa, yeah. He is so good in this film. He's only in a couple of other films. But I have to feel that one of the reasons he's so good in this film is because the film embraced who he is and let him let him be a real voice as a creative artist in this and not just as we need... A guy, we need an Indian-looking guy to play an Indian. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and you also get, maybe because of this, the coolest, best Grand Green performance ever. Like, he is, I don't think he's ever been cooler in a movie. Like, I want a TV show about his character, Walter Crowhorse. Like, he is awesome. He's such a badass in this movie. Yeah, his yeah. role in this, it's... Yeah, he's definitely the cool, the coolest character in the film, as I said in my intro. But at the same time, he's also like the source of humor in this movie. Like he definitely. is the funniest part of this movie as well. Like he is such a like a wise wise guy in the best way. Like he's like so dry in the way that he like will insult Val Kilmer or the way he'll be kind of a know it all in a way is so funny. And it's just and it's, he's so. Like, he's just such a confident, cool character. And even the way he dresses is really cool. Like, like I want to be Graham Greene in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he rides a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, he's a badass. <laughs> and it's really, it from a cinematic standpoint, it's as a third act turn to have them come together. It just feels really good. It's one of those things mm-hmm. that I'm saying, if you were watching this on Thanksgiving, when that happens, you as an audience get to have a moment of feeling good about the stuff that, like, you, there isn't that moment in Incident at Oglala. And because yeah. it feels authentic and earned, you get to really feel good about it. Like, I like the idea that these two guys could become, you know, friends and allies 
in working for genuine justice as opposed to the Department of Justice. Um, the Fed, well, they have all these funny names for the Federal Bureau of... Raymond LaVoy Little Wiener, Federal Bureau of Interpretation. Now, in case you didn't know it, officer, violation of the Major, major Crimes, crimes Act on an Indian reservation is within the jurisdiction of the Federal Bureau of Intimidation. I know that. Well, let, getting into the, the FBI... I think it was only after the FBI got kicked in the teeth by the Cedar Rapids jury that they began to get into the machinations that occurred at Fargo. And they needed something to pin on Leonard Peltier. So they invented the red van story because they knew Leonard Peltier had a red van. Well, I can only explain what the government presented. They claimed that my I was driving this red and uh, white van. Special Agent Williams and Kohler saw the red and white van. It's kind of a suburban vehicle. Well, my recollection is that uh, it was uh, a red Jeep suburban type vehicle. But initially, all of the FBI's own descriptions of that vehicle was that it was a pickup or a Jeep, but never a van. And what Leonard Peltier had was a van. And there was a report, an FBI 302, that on the day before this shooting, a Bureau of Indian Affairs investigator named Eckerfee had had a conversation with Cole and Williams because they were looking for a man named Jimmy Eagle and they were asking for his help. We had no intention or anything of looking for, for Leonard Peltier. We were basically looking for Jimmy Eagle. According to Eckerfee's report, Cole and Williams were looking for a red pickup truck because that was the vehicle that Jimmy Eagle was identified as driving. Just before the shootout on June 26th, there was radio transmission from Agent Williams that he was in pursuit of a red pickup truck. Agent Adams testified at both the Cedar Rapids trial and the Fargo trial that he heard Williams say that he was in pursuit of a red pickup truck. Now one must assume that Agent Williams knew the difference between a pickup and a van, and certainly knew that if it was red and white, he wouldn't say it was red, he would say it was red and white. I don't know if Williams and Kohler were raised on the farm or in the country, but that that van is a pickup to some people. A pickup to me includes a van, includes scouts, it includes covered vehicles, it includes campers perhaps. All of those things basically in colloquial language kind of mean the same thing depending on your context. The FBI was so certain right after the firefight that the agents, Colin Williams, were chasing a pickup. That on July 1st of 1975, when the director of the FBI, Clarence Kelly, held a press conference in Los Angeles about this firefight, he very clearly described how the agents were chasing a red pickup. So standing in for the, for the entire FBI, pretty much, is Sam Shepard in yeah. this film. And he... Well, he's great and he's terrible, which is that this is how you play a villain is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sam Shepard just killing it in this role. Oh, yeah. It's it's a it's an interesting character because at first you don't think of him as a bad guy. You kind of think he's a good guy. And the way that you kind of the information is revealed in the way that he plays it as that is happening 
is so believable. Like it's very, it's a very realistic feeling performance from Sam, like as expected from Sam Shepard. He's just so good at his job, but like you really love to hate him in this movie. <laughs> I'm trying to think where where this sits in his in his career as an actor. He had he was pretty well like in a way he's he's one of the bigger stars. Like was he? I guess he was probably uh, he and Kilmer were the big stars in this movie. And uh, yeah, he's just he's a he's a badass. He's a, he's just such a good actor. I feel like he's one of those actors who maybe the world isn't wrong about, but the world is not. Well. Let's back it up. Maybe it's sort of it's along the same lines of Trudell is what I'm talking about. Is, is that same idea that he's such an important historical figure as a writer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. as a part of just the '60s scene and Dylan and all that before he's ever on mo- in movies, he's already mm-hmm. he already has so much authority. And then yeah. he just then he must have just this natural charisma. It's funny. I, he's his first thing. He was in Ronaldo and Clara, the mm-hmm. uh, the Bob Dylan film that never came out. And then he's in Days of Heaven. And from Days of Heaven, it's just like, oh, this guy's a movie star. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite? Yes. Do you have any favorite Sam Shepard films or plays? Um, I really like the right stuff. I think that movie's really good, and he's really good in that. And I'm trying to think of, he's in so many movies that just like, he's like Ed Harris, where I just kind of took him for granted, where he just shows up in so many good things that I don't even know exactly the names of them. I just know he's in them and he's good. Uh, I don't know. Say some titles. I'm just like, I know Sam Shepard, but what else is he in? I, 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 and I've read some of his plays. Like, was that, what was the... What was the one they made the Altman movie out of? The the Fool for Love. Fool for Love. That I read that play. I read the one where the guy's kicking the dead horse. That one was good. Uh <laughs> Far West, is that a name of a play he wrote? True West. True West. That's a good play. See, I too am guilty of like I'm not so familiar with this the specifics of his career in life. I just know that he's great. I just know when he shows up. I'm into it. I'm a fan. I actually saw him in person once. He was in, he was in a coffee shop. He came in and he ordered a hibiscus tea, and he sat down, was trying to mind his own business. Pulled a poem, literally pulled a poem out of his back jean pocket like a cowboy poet, and was just like scribbling in some Texas cafe. And then this lady busts through the door and it starts yelling like Sam, Sam! Oh my God, Sam! It's you! Oh Sam! And he just looked horrified, like he just went totally white and was just like deer in headlights. And you can tell he was about to be like, yes, I know it's me, Sam Shepard. Please, I'm just trying to work on my poem. Please leave me alone. And then she just like ran past him and hugged some other man in the coffee shop. And then he was just so sad that this like beautiful young lady did not know who he was. So she too took Sam Shepard for granted and didn't know the the power of Sam Shepard. Well, you know who did know the power of Sam Shepard? Jessica Lange. Oh, that's, of course. that's right. <laughs> they met on the set of Francis, the film about Francis Farmer, and then were almost inseparable 
for a long well they were inseparable for a long time they did end up divorcing after many years but they were and they were on film a bunch they were in i think they were in fool for love together and they were in was it country they were in a bunch of films where they were together and uh that seems like one of those fruitful artistic relationships Let's see who else is in the film that we should uh, give some some shout outs to. Fred Fred Ward. Oh yes, Fred Ward kind of plays the corrupt uh, mayor, I guess, or whatever. Is he the mayor? Is that right? Well, he plays the analog to Dick Wilson, who was. Yeah, I'm Dick Wilson, chairman of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe. In the spring of 1972, Dick Wilson, a mixed blood with non-traditional views, was elected president of the Pine Ridge Tribal Council. As president, Wilson wielded a great deal of economic power, controlling most of the scarce jobs on the reservation and administering federal program funds, the main source of income for most Indians. The perception was that Dick Wilson's administration was using government program money for his own benefit to enrich his own administration without really giving a fair share to the people that it was intended to reach. Dick Wilson had immediately followed the same uh, position uh, as all tribal leaders had done, just to work with the Bureau of Indian Affairs and help with the needs of the people. Fred Ward is, it plays sort of that analog in the film. And boy, you really, you really hate that guy. Even more than... He's yeah. just he's just a badass who you are like from the second you see him, you know that you're supposed to not like him. He's just such a menacing presence, yeah, from the get go. And I think my, the only complaint I would have about this movie is that there's not enough of Fred Ward in this movie. Like I wish there was more of him and his character. And another actor who in real life is part Native American. So Yeah. There's a scene where uh, Val Kilmer opens up a can of whoop ass on a bunch of the <laughs> the sort of the goon squads and that scene is so good it feels so again it's like one of these things that pro that didn't really happen and it's like you can imagine making the documentary and wishing that some that there you could have a moment like this where one of the FBI agents just turns around and starts being on the right side of things it's yeah. one of the great things that film can do. It gives us these cathartic moments that life doesn't always give us. And yeah. again, because it's so grounded in reality, I feel like it's a positive. Whereas it would in another film, you might be like, well, that's never going to happen. Don't don't lie to me, movie, you know, and but this film is not. It's like, no, these we've showed you these the FBI agents who are we interviewed in Incident Oglala are liars and thinks and now we get to have some cathartic movie uh emotion that uh apta delivers beautifully with uh with kilmer and ward and and sam shepherd shutting it all down it's uh yeah. okay here's a question yeah. is that david crosby as the bartender yes <laughs> or a guy just looks it, like nope, david crosby? it is in the early 90s uh, David Crosby was in three films. In 1991, he was in Hook. In 19, <laughs> also in 1991, he was in Backdraft. And then in 1992, he okay. played the 
racist bartender in Thunderheart. <laughs> Do you think that character's uh, like Kilmer, like between the three movies, is shared similarities? <laughs> is there a story there from Hook to backdraft to Thunderheart's uh, racist bartender? I'm sh- I'm sure there is. I'm sure you could make that. You could draw that connection. <laughs> and I like. <laughs> Do you think, like, do you think he was, like, him also being a 60s guy and an activist sort of guy, do you think he maybe chose to be in this movie? I can't see him as being picked just be from a list of actors. I feel like there must have been a connection of him actually wanting to be there. Maybe he was even there in the 70s. You know, like, I don't know. I just feel like David Crosby could very much tap into the reality of, of the situation uh, like kind of just being like I just feel like he must have wanted to be like, it's such a small part like the reason why I asked if it was him because when he shows up in the movie he's kind of in the fuzzy background while Val Kilmer and Sam Shepard are talking at a bar so it just makes you think like well that can't be David Crosby why would he go all the way to the Badlands to be in just like this little tiny part but that's him <laughs> so yeah he must have really wanted to be in this movie yeah, well, this film, it has a lot of rock star, movie star cred. First of all, Redford narrates the documentary. And this was, and somehow I feel like this must be, have some sort of Sundance connection. And Sundance would have been still pretty new. It was only founded in 81. Mm-hmm. This came out in 92. Robert De Niro's film company, Tribeca, produced this film and it was the first mm. non-De Niro film that they produced um, and then yeah. Springsteen gives them Badlands to use for the soundtrack for using the soundtrack and Springsteen doesn't give his songs out very often and Jackson Brown yeah. did the uh, did the was the music supervisor with John Trudell on Incident at Oglala the documentary and well, Springsteen, Jackson Brown, and David Crosby were all part of the No Nukes uh, concerts mm-hmm. in the 70s and uranium mining on uh, indigenous land is part of that story. So you can see how those guys would be drawn into mm. the orbit of this film, right? Okay. So I think that's, you yeah. know, if you're... So you, and this is one of the things... And I don't know, and I haven't been able to find this in my research, is to like how this project came about. Was the documentary first, and then Aptit saw the opportunity to make a narrative feature? Or did the narrative feature start first, and in researching the narrative feature, he decided to make the documentary? And I mean, like, both... It takes a long time to make, like, a documentary and a narrative. So, like, maybe... It was the screenwriter John Fusco, who he was he was living on the reservation at the time for months, I guess, while writing it, and so it's possible that while that was going on, he met all these people, which led to the idea of a documentary. Eventually, I, I, I'm not sure, but I mean, like movies take forever to make, like like narrative movies, like like casting alone, like I'm sure, like they had the cast figured out months and months before they you know filmed, of course. But, like, it's interesting looking at, according to IMDb, the cast that existed before Val Kilmer is, like, so off the mark and hilarious. Like, first off, 
Mel Gibson was considered no. for the role of Ray. No, no. <laughs> Can you imagine what that, what's that movie like? That would not age well. That would not have aged well. I mean, it would. It's. It'll be interesting when he's our president, and we'll be like that movie. No, hard, but it didn't happen, you know. So, uh, but Wait, he was born in Australia. Pers- I don't think he can be president. You had to be born in the United States to be president. Oh, uh, they they can change the rules. You'll okay. see for Mel. Uh, yeah, they've, they've, they've already <laughs> changed Mel. so many rules for Mel. Yeah, but then also Arnold Schwarzenegger was no! considered for the part. That was, How is that? How's that going to work? Like, can you imagine him being like, yeah, I'm pot, you know, Native American. You're like, no, no, you're not, Arnold. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> God, it makes you think that there was a different director at one point. I can't imagine I, I, that the same guy who made these films was considering Mel. Um, Mel Gibson used to be cool, but ever no one, I can't imagine Schwarzenegger ever making sense in this movie. But I mean, like, I also like this is probably who knows like what who submitted these ideas to Apted. So like he probably was because as far as I can tell, he was always the director of this. I have not found any evidence that he wasn't the person solely driving these these movies. But like I would imagine like maybe it was like the studio or someone being like, hey, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Total Recall's a hit. Maybe we can follow it up with a Thunderheart. Like you never know. Like, which one came out first? Thunderheart came out on April 3rd, 1992, and the documentary came out in June of that year. Oh, interesting. Huh. Uh, but that doesn't so, mean, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you could totally could... see, sort of like what you're saying, Thunderheart, more people are going to pay attention to a Val Kilmer film than this documentary. So you come out with the narrative feature first, and then ride the coattails of the promotion with incident at Oglala. Actually, there's a, I don't know if it's, if now, well, I guess now's the time to get into it because we just, we got there. So I have this very personal synchronicity from around that time that connects to this. And I just wanted to unpack it because it's so in my research, it just struck me. So That week of April, when this film came out, April 3rd, I was taking part in a uh, protest action in Nevada on Western Shoshone land. There was this incident, uh, there was an event called the 100th Monkey Action or 100th Monkey Protests. And it started with a concert in Las Vegas on April 10th through the 12th, and then a five-day march up the highway like 70 miles to the nevada nuclear test site where there was a weekend of protests and my it's so weird because my own experience of that was similar to the experience that val kilmer i didn't find out that i was i had native american heritage but i found myself weirdly called to this event that i went to without knowing anything and showed up there and it completely it was a very spiritual thing that walk up the uh, up the highway with all these there were all these uh, western shoshone elders who were walking with us and people from a sister city in japan that were also opposing nuclear testing and i met 
the woman I would marry and be with for 11 years there. And if it weren't for that, I probably wouldn't have left L.A. and come back to Olympia. And I might not have ever met you. Uh, and we wouldn't this be doing is, this. We wouldn't be here right now talking about this. We wouldn't be this. doing this podcast. So that was, that, was also, that was all really unique. And then I also, in doing my research, well, part of what happened that week was on April 13th, the Monday after this of the concert event, and 10 days after Thunderheart came out, the organizer of the event, a guy named Rick Springer, was involved in a, his own personal protest. He, how do I describe it? He wrote a book called Excuse Me, Mr. President that tells this story, but he was at an event where Ronald Reagan was being given a, an award from the National Association of Broadcasters. And somehow he managed to get into the event and he was there and they gave Ronald Reagan this crystal eagle. And according to Rick, he was just standing there and he saw this, a path open up for him. And he just walked right through and walked right up on stage, just felt called in very similar. It's so funny. I'm not even, I'm realizing how much that, that, end of the movie is reflected in Rick's story of like, okay, we're just going to go in the wrong direction and there's no way that this can work out. And it's the same kind of thing. He felt called to it. He, he walked up, he didn't, he just, he had, he had had, he's an activist, so he's not averse to walking on stage and interrupting Mm -hmm. events. And yet, you know, this is a president, he's guarded by the Secret Service. So he walks up on stage, he says, excuse me, Mr. President, and he lifts up the crystal eagle. And then he's immediately tackled by the Secret Service and a glass shard flies off of the eagle and hits Reagan in the face, leading to Rick Springer being charged with assaulting an ex-president. And he was released on bail and he came (laughs) back to the protest. It was all, it really inspired all of us. But then he eventually had to go to prison for a few years for, for for this act. It made me think that there's something about this film that invites us to be awakened. And that's my own experience. And I'm, I'm, I'm only saying it not to like brag about being in part of this protest, but just saying that like the whole idea of the film is that when we start to engage deeply with the true history of this land and the people who are a part of it, that there are these truths and patterns that are revealed that may seem like a very weird connection, but if it happens to you, it's just as real as what's happening for the Val Kilmer character in the film. And when you say that the writer spent so much time on that land, it makes me think that what he's writing about is his experience. Oh, yeah. And that that experience is not just for this character in this movie, but it's for anyone who is ready to put themselves in a place to learn from something that's deeper than just American culture that began here 200 and something years ago. So do you have, what, what's your connection to the history of Native American genocide and whatnot? I mean, you grew up in Olympia where there's a, probably a greater awareness and a conversation about that. Uh, yeah. I'm yeah, very lucky to have grown up in Olympia where this is definitely a part of the curriculum in school and, and not just in college, but in elementary school, middle school, high school. And I don't think other 
places lean into it so much like because that's the local history of washington is the native american history like so many of the places are named after them uh my mother uh taught art on the uh, nisqually uh reservation she taught at wahaloo uh elementary school i think it was an elementary school and uh just uh in, when i went to evergreen we went to nia bay and hung out there and met members of the tribe up there and uh it's just Growing up there, it just you. It really is a part of of the fabric. It's just just part of the, everything that you're doing, uh, and it's great. And I'm, I feel very blessed to, to have that upbringing. Um, so, like, like when I was watching Incident at Oglala, my wife had never heard of Leonard Peltier, never heard of the incident, and I didn't realize it wasn't a thing that everybody knew about. Just like because in Olympia, you see the bumper stickers to free him everywhere. You know, like that's such a thing that's just a part of being an Olympia is you just knew that like that guy needs to get out of prison. Uh, so like it was just great to like watch this movie with someone who didn't know about that and watch them learn about it. Uh, and same with John Trudell. Like I kind of always knew about him, but I don't think everybody does. And so you said you actually, it, you, he was on your show. He was on radio eight ball. Yeah. We recorded a radio eight ball episode or put on, it was, that's when we were doing live events. We did a live radio eight ball event that we recorded in Joshua Tree National Park with John Trudell reading his poems randomly chosen by the Wheel of Eight as the answers to questions. And maybe I'll uh, I'll throw a sample of that on the end of this podcast. Uh, but yeah, yeah he, I also, I'm, I met him in some really, again, some really deeply weird and synchronistic ways. The first time I met him was hanging out with a friend of mine who I met at the Nevada nuclear test site at one of those protests, a guy named Craig X. Rubin. He was a big marijuana activist in Los Angeles in the 90s. And he, I met John Trudell at his house. And we were there. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember when there was, uh, there was this, uh, it was like something like right out of, right out of the film Heat, where these guys with assault weapons were walking down the street in the valley in L.A., like uh, North Hollywood, Burbank area, and they were just shooting up the street. Maybe they were coming out of a bank robbery or something. And in L.A., it was big oh. news. It was, And it was, it's the kind of thing you might see that's more normal now, but it was the first time we'd seen something like that. Look at the Ford Explorer. Its windows are already uh, blown out. This is the gunman after he came out of the bank. This is the first of two gunmen that shot it out with police. And we're showing you this again to give you an idea of the type of firefight that took place about 9.50 this morning, about 50 minutes after these bank robbers were confronted. Now, this is the gunman. He's crouching. He starts to walk away almost nonchalantly, but look at him with his AK-47. Now he's starting to open up. Police, he's firing at police who are across the street in a parking lot. Now he's walking... I remember sitting with John as he basically unpacked what was happening in front of us. And a lot of the things he said that day were, I can only say, prophetic or insightful to the world that we now live in. And then years, a couple of years later, he played through L. He played in Olympia and he, his guitarist borrowed my guitar and amp so because something was wrong with theirs. And yeah, we, getting to know him a little bit and then get, getting to actually have him as a part of the show was 
uh, one of the great, uh, it's of the people I have met, he is one of the most impressive. And sadly, when I name drop him, most people that I mention him to don't know who he is, which gets, which is one of the reasons I feel passionate about doing this podcast, uh, this particular episode, because I think more people should know who he is. Yeah. So I wanted to unpack one other piece, but is there anything else about this film that we didn't hit on that you wanted to talk about? Or these films? No, I think we cover Yeah. I think we did a good job. <laughs> yeah. Good job, us. We did a good job. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> it's all in how I edit it, right? Uh <laughs> But well, one of the things that's that's really unique I feel about this cinematic feat is having a documentary released about the subject of your narrative feature and doing that with, as one director. Yeah. And I ask you, as our, I don't know, film historian who has spent so much time with so many titles <laughs> and at Vulcan Video, yeah. to come up with a list of other directors who have attempted a similar feat. Yeah. I think the main one that came to my mind was Werner Herzog. With he made a documentary in the seventies called "Little Dieter Needs to Fly," about a, a POW from Vietnam, and then a few decades later he made "Rescue Dawn," which is based on that doc starring uh, Christian Bale as that character. So that's definitely like maybe the most famous one. I also the movie "Party Monster," the guys who made. The Doc uh, Party Monster, the true crime kind of rave murder movie, also made the fictional version of it or the biopic version of it with Macaulay Culkin. Uh, Penelope Spheris uh, directed Decline of Western Civilization 1 about uh, punk bands in L.A. in the early 80s. And in that movie, she hangs out at a lot of punk houses and hangs out, talks to a lot of the kids involved in the scene. And then right after that, she made Suburbia, which is basically about those people, like and in, in, in specifically about sort of homeless punks, and it's done with quite uh, quite a bit of reverence, and it's just it's that's a really good that's a good double feature for sure. Definitely watch Decline and Suburbia, and then the more it, the most interesting one I think is the Beaver trilogy, oh, yeah. made by Trent Har Trent Harris, and this one's a little harder to find, and if you could find it, oh, it's great. So Trent Harris, the most famous thing I guess anyone would know is Reuben and Ed. But even that's not famous enough. Maybe we need to do a Trent Harris episode. But he's an interesting, quirky filmmaker. Kind of hasn't made much of anything in a while. At least nothing accessible. But the Beaver Trilogy is a document, a short he made about sort of this female impersonator who does like a Olivia Newton-John bit. And then he made it again with Sean Penn as that character. Then he made it again with Crispin Glover as that character. And that is a very interesting film experience. And this is like like uh, Spicoli era, Sean Penn and River's Edge era, Crispin Glover. Yeah. Right. So like they're young. Like, they're very young. Young. Yeah. And that is one of the most interesting film experiments, I think, is like making the doc, making it again. And then making it again. <laughs> I wish he didn't stop. I wish he just kept doing it with different well, actors. And there actresses. is a Beaver Trilogy 4, which is a documentary really? about uh, about Trent Harris and about the first three films and features the first time that the director, Trent Harris, met the original 
guy who we made the documentary about after making all these films. And what's what I find interesting about those films is that Trent Harris is a character in the film and he makes himself out to be a villain in the films about <laughs> these films that he's made. So I just I think he's he is a really, really great and interesting director and uh, and definitely something we could cover. Oh, yeah. Any other ones? Those are the ones I thought of. I can't think of any other where the same person made the doc and made the fiction. Like, there's certainly, like, companion docs to movies like Apocalypse Now and Hearts of Darkness or, speaking of Werner Herzog again, uh, the Fitzcarraldo and Burden of Dreams. So there's definitely that. But the in- interesting thing that Apted did here with making both of them is not a lot of filmmakers do. But when they do, I think it's always interesting. Like, like that list I just gave you, like... None of those are boring. Like, that's all really fascinating. Yeah, and it's not the same, but I do... I wanted to bring up uh, Coppola, who you're covering on the director's wall, and the films The Outsiders and Rumblefish. Not that there's a documentary aspect to it, but the... Well, so I had an experience where I auditioned for one of the casting directors who cast The Outsiders, and she told me this great story about Rumblefish that... During the making of The Outsiders, Coppola saw all the saw, saw every young actor that was going at the time. So he would have seen Sean Penn and he would have seen all these other, you know, Timothy Hutton and other young actors at the time. And one of the young actors that he saw was Mickey Rourke. And he got Coppola got so into Mickey Rourke and he really wanted to get him into The Outsiders, but he couldn't find a role for him. And so he had this idea to make a smaller film r- based upon another S.E. Hinton novel called Rumblefish and basically go into pre-production on Rumblefish while they were shooting The Outsiders. And something about that, about getting so into a property or a writer's voice that while you're making one, you start rolling out on the other and you start get a similar it's different because it's not documentary but something about that like the production feat of making two films at once that end up being companion pieces and because one is smaller and black and white and weird it allows the first the other one to be a lot more cinemascope and color and dramatic and like they they just they get to carry each other's burden in a way so that was the other one that i thought Hmm. of that was Different, but similar. Interesting. Hey, y'all. It's Amy from the Pink Among Men podcast. I know. You are really, really busy with your sourdough starter and your fourth rewatch of The Office. So it's totally cool if you don't have time for an informative, perspective-bending podcast right now. But if you do have a few minutes to spare in your jam-packed schedule, I want to offer Pink Among Men for your consideration. Pink Among Men is a weekly conversation on different perspectives, gender, and marginalization in the creative community. We chat with actors from shows you watch, directors who make movies that you want to watch, and comedians from stand-up shows that you'll probably never watch, but you should. Every Wednesday, they sit down to talk about the tragedy and the triumph that comes with not being a white dude in arts and entertainment. You probably don't have time for it, but maybe subscribe so you can listen when you're a little less busy. Get Pink Among Men on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're a proud member of the Paperhouse Network. Let's uh, well, let's 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 move on a little bit 
And I, we've mentioned it a few times, but the director's wall, as I, as I was talking about Francis Ford Coppola, you host another podcast called The Director's Wall with A.J. Gonzalez, your former uh, co-worker at Vulcan Video, and you're in the middle of covering yeah. uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Last, last uh, year, you did the M. Night Shyamalan uh, filmography. Are you? I, I'm curious, are you going to cover his new film? They just announced that he's doing a new film. Will you go back? to i don't i don't know i feel like uh it's interesting i feel like i shouldn't we shouldn't have done m night Shyamalan in a way like i feel like i kind of wish we hadn't done it because i've never really been into his movies that much and then that showed towards the end when we were getting to like the stuff that i really didn't like it was just me complaining it was just like podcast ever podcast of me just being like i don't like this movie i don't like this like the complete opposite of what this show is that we're doing and what the director's well has become. And so I think, I don't know if I want to do the new one because I don't really like him as a filmmaker, really. Like, I feel like it's, it's an, it's not fair to have me be the person reviewing a Shyamalan. I, I'm much more comfortable doing Coppola, uh, than, than M. Night Shyamalan. So I don't know. It'll be up to AJ. And I think if we did do it, I would learn from what we've, our experience of the world is wrong and just, shelve all the problems i have and find what's interesting about it so maybe it'll be a new leaf for me maybe it'll be like a new way of looking at m night Shyamalan of not just like ripping it apart and picking it down but building up and finding the fascinating thing within it i haven't even heard what the new movie is i have no idea this is the first i i mean i would assume he would keep making movies i don't know what it is um it's a one name title old old his new film is called old okay so, it's... and I've already seen people being like, "I can guess the twist." He's old. Like... <laughs> He's not old. <laughs> old. Okay. Uh, yeah. But so. yeah. <laughs> but right now you're Coppola. covering Francis. And speaking Ford of outsiders, like that's sort of where we're at now. We're kind of in this early '80s Coppola, so we're definitely going to be covering outsiders and Rumblefish. Like that's probably around now. Like we record these episodes, we're doing. A, a, in advance a bit but my but my guess i think this will be coming out around the time of us doing the outsiders nice that's, nice that's my prediction um and you we've talked about it a lot in this episode but let's talk about it again you do the radio eight ball show do you consider it a podcast now because you've but you've done it before podcasts were a thing I and mean, you did it live and you've yeah. done it on, so it's just a show it's not i won't even say podcast sure yeah, it is a it's a show, it's a format, but currently released at, as a weekly podcast. Now, have you ever done a guilt fast show, or have you have you tied it into your? Oh like, yeah, like what? I have what's asked the many. Time? I have asked many a guilt fast question on the show, to the <laughs> ire and consternation of my guests. <laughs> That's when I always get the pushback of like, oh, guilt is negative. And then I have to remind them, no, guilt is not negative. Shame is negative. Guilt is cleansing. If you know it, <laughs> if you acknowledge your guilt, it makes it sets you free. We're recording this a couple of days after. Maybe this is the Jewishness in me. This, we're recording this a couple of days after Yom Kippur, a day of atonement. And I feel like America should have a day of atonement. We definitely have a lot to atone for. So... Yeah. Um, cool. Well, uh, I hope you check. I hope you check out 
if you're listening to this, you check out. Uh, well, if you like if you like this podcast, first you're gonna like the director's wall. That's easy. You like movies. You like Brian's voice. You're gonna love that <laughs> podcast. But I do hope you check out Radio Eight Ball because we do talk about films. I'm talking about films more on the show because of doing this podcast. So yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but Thunderheart starts with a musical synchronicity. Did you pick up on that? Uh, with the Springsteen song. Yeah, that he's driving in the car and he's about to be called to the Badlands and mm-hmm. then the the radio on his car is playing Badlands by Bruce Springsteen, which is sort of like the most typical example of a musical synchronicity where you're thinking of something and then a song comes on the radio that's just the perfect song for that. Yeah. And I don't know, as so as a connoisseur of musical synchronicity, I kind of dug that. And I also just thought that that kind of... I don't know, it connects this idea that there there are patterns and connections that are far below consciousness that express themselves through these synchronicities. If you've ever been in the midst of having sort of powerful mystical experiences, they seem to be accompanied by synchronicities. So I just thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, but uh, we should go pretty quick because I've made the workers who are working below my apartment (laughs) be quiet, and uh, I'm sure they love taking a break. But if you enjoy this podcast, please find us at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at at theworldiswrongpodcast, and Brian curates, mostly curates that and does a great job and posts lots of... uh, cool pictures and videos and uh anything else before we go brian uh just to stay tuned our next episode is going to be solo oh yeah oh i'm so excited about this one you might think you don't like this movie i thought i didn't like this movie i went back it's so good so good it's gonna yeah. be a great episode so i'm pumped i'm pumped about that uh all right I, i'm great i think ha- happy Thanksgiving, happy, happy guilt fast. Uh, let's, you know, happy day, happy Thursday, whatever you want. Yes. And uh, until next time, just remember, folks, wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. Look, I don't have to do this. You don't have any choice. I'm trying to help you people. Now, why won't you accept that? It's in our DNA. You have to do what old man says. What makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, Ray. And this question comes from Josh Prince. Josh Prince. And I'm told that... uh, It's Josh's birthday. So welcome, Josh, and happy birthday. It's perfectly auspicious that you happen to be here. 
So please read your question for us. I couldn't quite make it out. Yeah, no one can make out my handwriting. I'm please like speak into the mic. No one can make out my handwriting. Half the time I can't. <laughs> All right, what well, my question was is, <laughs> I was talking about the price of gas and it going up above six dollars. And if that and uh, will my question was is that going to cause people to like uh, use ethanol in the future? Well, the cost of gas, the rise of cost of gas caused people to use ethanol in the future. Please yeah. spin the wheel this way. Uh, no, the other way. The other way? Yeah. Good. Oops. That's just fine. And we're in Taurus. Yes. The bull. Bombs over Baghdad. That's <laughs> <laughs> Bombs over Baghdad, dancers of death, murder in the air with the next breath. Macho queens selling war makers toys, raining destruction, good old boys. Deathbringer in Queen George's eyes, read his lips, war maker lies. Religious reichs, revenging sword, thou shalt kill in the name of the Lord. The sheep and the cattle can't keep from milling, some are more than ready, some aren't willing. Volunteering in what they're not dying for, the young Republican guard crying for war. Free speech as free as it's thought. Controlled behavior reacts as it's taught. Fighting for peace can't comprehend. Hate out of violence is violent pretend. Vampires drinking blood and oil cocktails. Their violence works, it hardly ever fails. When blind man can't see, he believes blind. Blind obedience is child of mindless mind. New world order is old world lie. Fighting for peace, see how they die. Dragging in God as they turn violent. God says nothing, he just remains silent. Stop madmen from running loose. Mother Earth can't take the abuse. Living right now is living for tomorrow. Time is saying there is no more time to borrow. Vampires drinking blood and oil cocktails. Their violence works. It hardly ever fails. Mm. I think that was the first, I think that might have been the first thing I ever heard of yours. First time I heard your voice was saying those words. Um, so anyway, that was, uh, that was great. That was the answer to Josh's question. Will the high price of gas lead us to use ethanol? <laughs> Um, Cars that run on blood, I think, might be the, the next thing. Uh, Josh, happy birthday, Thank first you. of all. Um, and uh, w did you get a particular hit off of that as the answer to your question? Uh, Onto the mic, please. That was a very interesting um, take on it as far as the answer to my question. Um, I'll have to think about that. Okay, so. well, well, yeah, that's why we're here. We'll help you. So, John. Well, it'll cause them to use ethanol and any things they can get their hands on, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so ethanol yeah, is just going to be answer. part of the mix, right? Uh, but, yeah, and the price of gas, there's an economic redistribution globally taking place, and America's taking its part of the hit. Because so, your average American is too, exp is too expensive to maintain. They're just too expensive to take care of when you can get workers in China and Eastern Bloc to work for a tenth of what the Americans will work for. So American, the Americans really need to get prepared, all right, for some seriously hard economic times because um, there's there's a 
globalization. There's an industrial. There's an industrial ruling class on this planet, and they're behind this globalization. See, and for a while in the America part of the whole trip, see, they needed the Americans to go out and tame the land and be productive and turn America into a big productive thing. But in the process of it, the Americans became too expensive. Just too damn expensive, man, all right? Uh, because they want health insurance and decent wages, and they want access to all the goodies that are being promised and offered. So, you know, so they're just too damn expensive. So what, so what they're doing now is that, or they have been doing for a while, all right, is making this global shift on economics in such a way that now they can take a lot of jobs, a lot of the stuff away. So there's a large percentage of millions, a large percentage of Americans. Basically, the poor will stay poor, but there's a, there's a, sec, a large segment of the middle class that isn't. They're only pretending to be middle class because the bills haven't been called in yet. Mm-hmm. But see, the bills are getting called in, all right? And, and, and then the Patriot Act is in place to take care of those who uh, uh, object, <laughs> right? So, so, yeah, the price of gas is going to go up, all right? But the price, it's, you know, it's, yeah, because it's their way, you know, because of, because of dwindling resources, because of dwindling resources, that industrial ruling class is going to make, see, this is, one of the, this is one of the ways, all right, is because they may through manipulation of economics is one of the ways, but they maintain their hold on access to a dwindling natural resource by making it too expensive for (laughs) the larger mass to get. Yeah, so it's going to go up. And ethanol, but the danger about going to ethanol, right, is it creates its own polluting factor, all right, and then it starts in turn to create a, a, a grain shortage, a food shortage, you know, which in turn is because feed, what, it, it takes eight pounds of grain to make a pound of beef, you know, so, so already because of the meat eating thing going on, there's all this grain. See, so, all right, well, anyway, see, so yeah, <laughs> it's going to be a lot of shortages. Well, and a lot, I mean, the, the song, you know, bringing it back to the song, you know, I, this was about Gulf One. You yeah, wrote, it was, yeah. yeah, I wrote it the day they started bombing. Yeah. I, I, I wrote that. I remember that day very well. Um, and, um, it made me the the law, the song makes me think of the the Martin Luther King line that every bomb dropped over in Vietnam. He was talking about the Vietnam War lands here. He said in the inner cities, but you could just say every bomb we've dropped over there is going to land over here at some point. Has landed and is landing, and is and that is what's that's part. You know, all this stuff you're talking about, John, is actually that's that's true. But as far as also as far as energy, the energy that we've put in that direction because is coming back. Yeah, well, the energy we put, I mean, they're use they use our energy for fuel. We're being mined. Human being being. Let's say the being is the energy part. The miners, those that feed off of us, they 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 mine our energy through our intelligence by how they program us to perceive reality. Then they turn the being part of human into a form of energy to run their systems. And, and that, you know, and, and, and like any mining process, it leaves behind poison and toxic. See, but the poison and toxic that gets left behind in the human are the fears and the doubts and insecurities that now become a part of how the, the human perceives reality through their fears or doubts and their insecurities. So they're no long, So once that happens, they're no longer perceiving reality clearly. So then it just becomes it's really almost like uh, uh, science or something, right? Where they can they have, where they can just take and convert. The, so they convert our energy, the being part of human, to form of energy to run their systems. Everything that's ever going to happen is about energy, mm-hmm. and though and those of us that that are not supportive of what they're doing or that are against what they're doing, see, we we just play along with them even though we don't understand. Sometimes even our opposition. Mm-hmm. We're cooperating with them. 
Because it's got to do with how we perceive reality. It's got to do with how we believe. We believe the political system is going to bring some solutions, then we're cooperating with them. If, if, we're going to, you know, if we just don't get clear and say, hold it, of all the problems we're facing, the economic, the religious, the political system is a part of the problem. Yeah. Right? It's not going to bring us a solution. Yeah, but we have to deal with it because it's there and we got to deal with it. But, but it's how we deal with things and how we believe in the things that we deal with and how we recognize that we have to deal with things, but we don't have to believe in them, but we got to deal with them because they're there. Am I making sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I thought. <laughs> no, okay, well, I'm lost. Let's <laughs> that's, well, that's a great question, Josh. Do you have anything else that you wanted to share in terms of your feel good? Like, I feel good. Happy birthday. Yeah. Uh, how old are you today? 29. 29. Yeah. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. One more time for Josh. Yeah. With your, please, with your left hand, reach in and pull out a question. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.